1: The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good people from around the world who want to make a difference. engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed. The only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello everybody and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is a very special Friday follow-up episode because Mike and I are, again, not in the studio. This week we are once again down in West Memphis, Arkansas, working on our new investigation of the West Memphis 3 case. So we are coming to you directly from a hotel room. So as usual, I want to apologize for any uh, lack in the quality of the sound. We don't have the best space here to record in. But again, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. And as I said, I'm your host, Bob Ruff.
0: And I'm your co-host, Mike Bussing.
1: And in this week's Friday Follow-Up, we're going to answer a couple of questions about the George Powell case. There's not a whole lot to answer in that one.
0: No, we've only got two questions on the Powell case this week. Right. And then uh, we had
1: some people that worked on the, the cleaning up of the video as well. That's right. So we'll talk a little bit about that. And then we're going to talk about some of our preparation for the West Memphis 3Ks. That's kind of what is on our minds right now as we're here working in West Memphis. So those are the three things we're going to cover. So we'll go ahead and get started.
0: Okay, our first question comes from Toby. Toby wants to know, is there a change with the status of, quote, Mr. Smith? I thought you weren't fully naming him but he's named in this episode.
1: Oh, that's a really good question, Toby, and a few people did ask that. So what's going on with Mr. Smith is at the very beginning of the case, Michael Ware, who you all heard interviewed this week, asked us to keep his name confidential because at that point, that interview was not in the official record. And we wanted to protect his identity for a number of reasons. One of them, the one that I was the most concerned with, was, of course, Mr. Smith's safety. However, since then, it has become part of the public record he has been named in every single news article, newspaper clipping, online article. Uh, and it was Mr. Ware's decision to use his full name on that episode this past week. So that explains that. However, without getting into detail, uh, I'm still very comfortable with Mr. Smith's safety based on his location. And that's really all I can get into with that. Uh, but yeah, that was, that was a decision made by Mike to go ahead and, and use his full name. And so we just allowed that to happen on the show.
0: All right, and listener Angela reached out on the fan page. She wrote, hoping someone can help. If a DA knowingly allows a witness to lie, can they be charged with perjury as well? And if not, why not? That's another really good
1: question. And the answer, I believe, is no. Now, you all know that I'm not a lawyer, but my understanding is no, they cannot be charged with perjury. However, they can be charged with prosecutorial misconduct. And I believe they could even lose their license to practice law for that. And, and that doesn't—that's not just for prosecutors. That's for defense. That's anyone who walks into a court of law. It is illegal for any attorney to put on, to knowingly put on false testimony or false evidence. However, as far as what would happen to them, like I said, the, the major consequence you would expect would be for them to lose their pra- license to practice law. Um, but at the same time, prosecutors have a pretty large degree of immunity. And that immunity is there for a purpose. Uh, the, the reason they're granted immunity is because it gives them uh, some leeway to actually do their job. If they were worried about being sued and arrested every time they say a good prosecutor that's doing their job property, properly properly uh, that accidentally gets something wrong, uh, they, they just can't have that hanging over their head or they wouldn't be able to do their jobs. But the downside of that is when you have, say, a corrupt district attorney who is doing things like purposely and intentionally putting on false testimony and witnesses, Uh, Typically, they're covered by immunity and it's you have to prove that they knew that they were doing that. And I would say that any even a corrupt district attorney or prosecutor that is putting on false testimony is probably really good at hiding that fact. There can be speculation, uh, but you typically can't prove it. And we see that a lot of times when you have uh, like jailhouse informant testimony where they're given a deal and it's not disclosed. What you'll find is there's never a paper trail They and they've never specifically told someone, if you do this, we'll give you that. You know, they'll say things, not writing down, but they'll say things to the person that's given the testimony. You know, you help us out and we'll make sure that, you know, we do whatever we can for you. And they leave it open-ended
0: like that to to kind of protect themselves. I think, and I think Mike Ware mentioned that in his interview in 406. Is that right? Yes. Yes, he did. Okay, and Bob, do you want to talk about the results we got from the video rendering from the 7-Eleven videos?
1: Yeah, we had a bunch of people that offered to help with, uh, to try to clean up that video, as we'd asked. And thank you to all of you that do that. There's too many of you to name everyone. I don't want to leave anybody out. And like I said, we're not in the office. where we got this all this stuff in front of us. We're, we're in a hotel in Arkansas. Um, but what we found is uh, we have a few people that were able to clean it up a little better than what we had. But you still really can't see anything. And from what I've been told, that is because... You know, you can't create pixels where there are no pixels. You know, you can't. And, and if you and if you were able to do that, you wouldn't be able to use it in a court of law because now you, have, now you have changed the video. Sure. As opposed to just cleaning it up. If you start, you know, like with Photoshop, you can go in and, you know, kind of fill in the gaps and copy pixels and, and smooth lines and things like that. You can't really do that, apparently. And, and, I, and I'm very ignorant on the subject, so I didn't really know that. Um, I thought maybe somebody could adjust the contrast a little bit to because there's a lot of whitewash. And a few people were able to do that, but it's still, the results were that we don't know anything more than we knew before.
0: Yeah, that's too bad because there were so many people that offered to help and and did what they could. We just didn't quite get there this time.
1: Yeah, but but at the same time, and you're exactly right, but at the same time for me, it's just I, I love any opportunity we have to ask for help like that, I think really speaks to what we do here as far as the crowdsourcing nature, how everybody's pitching in. Everybody has a skill set somewhere that at some point could come into play, that could come into use. And, you know, it was, you could tell when we asked the question that there were dozens of people that had been just waiting for their opportunity to be the one to pitch in and do something that's going to help. And, and and they jumped at the opportunity. Unfortunately, I gave them an, an impossible task. <laughs> but um, I, I have no doubt in my mind that if it was possible to get it done, that
0: they would have got it done. Okay, and before we wrap up everything with Season 4, George has a message for all the listeners. Right, and this is actually the, you know, I've only spoken with George on the phone a couple of
1: times. And the second time I talked to him, he asked me if he gave all of you, the listeners, a message if I would play that for him. And I promised that I would, and as this is, for right now, our very final episode covering Season 4, we decided that this would be the time to do it. Now, remember, George was a musician. He was he considered himself to be a quote patriotic rapper, uh, but he's a writer. He's a musician, uh, and you'll and you'll hear that a little bit in the message that he has for all of you listeners. But but he wrote this down. You know, at the end of the after he kept on saying it, I told him that it kind of sounds like there's a song in there somewhere, and he chuckled and said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah there probably is." <laughs> um, so. Uh, we're we're going to play this clip from George that he asks us to play for all of you in appreciation for the work that you've all done on on his case and the short t- period of time that we had to work on it. And then we're going to take a break from the ads. And then we've got something that I think you'll all find really interesting in preparation for Season 5, the reinvestigation of the West Memphis 3 case.
2: Hello, everyone. My name is George Powell III. First and foremost... I would like to say I sincerely appreciate your support and the support of everyone listening to this podcast. To each and every one of you, I send my absolute appreciation and recognition. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart for your time, care, and concern, and your unconditional love. I applaud you for your effort, commitment, and determination to being vigilant in the name and cause of truth and justice. Your time, labor, and sacrifice to defend and fight for truth and justice is not for one single second in vain or wasted. Each and every one of you has a purpose. Each and every one of you are necessary, meaning you are fundamentally essential and indispensable in the name and cause of truth and justice. Integrity is a must. Even when injustice seems to succeed, character must have moral and ethical strength. Even when an adversary uses deceptive methods to underhand truth and justice, never compromise who you are because there is never any justification for doing the wrong thing. And each and every one of you in the name and cause of truth and justice must proceed and continue to grow and develop individually and collectively in the right conduct to protect and serve the name and cause of truth and justice. I am the victim of an injustice and this experience has opened my eyes and shown me why I must be a part of the percentage in this world who will not compromise truth and justice by any means. Because if I participate in the deception causing others to become victims of injustice, then I only deceive myself into believing that I deserve something better than what I produce. There is a large percentage of people who have accepted that they are not important and that their lives don't matter. But that's a lie, because you are important and your life does matter. You have to believe in yourself, rise up, and begin searching for knowledge, wisdom, and also understanding. And search for it to obtain it more than anything you've ever desired before in your life. Once you obtain knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, you can proceed into becoming the person the future meant for you to be. So be strong and be wise. Continue to stand up for truth and justice. Search for each other and develop yourselves using each other to become better, stronger, and wiser people. Thank you for your time. Bless everyone and continue in integrity.
0: All right, with season five approaching fast, we've got nine days until we launch. So people want to know if they should watch the documentaries to prepare. Yeah, and a lot of people have asked me that too and
1: I I don't really know the answer to that. I guess the answer is it doesn't matter either way. So as as a list for people who do want to do some pre-homework for season 5 before it launches next week, there were uh, HBO put out three documentaries called Paradise Lost. There's three different volumes. And then Amy Berg directed a documentary, which in my opinion is probably the best of all of them, called West of Memphis. And that was on Stars. That one's a little harder to find. Uh, The Paradise Lost, you can find all three of them on YouTube. Or if you have HBO On Demand or HBO Go, you can get them there. West of Memphis was on Stars. I think you have to have a subscription to do that. I've heard that maybe it's on Amazon Prime. I'm not positive about that. Uh, But the only place that I was able to find it was actually on iTunes. I went and rented it on iTunes and downloaded it on my smart TV and watched it. So that's a good one. Uh, There's also The Devil's Knot, which was a Hollywood version. Uh, in this one, Pam Hobbs, who Stevie Branch is one of the victims' mothers, is played by Reese Witherspoon. Really good movie. It's fictional. Uh, it's a Hollywood production, but it's pretty true to fact. I mean, they, they you, you get a pretty good overview of it. It's also been covered on a lot of great podcasts. Um, our our friends at the True Crime Garage, Nick and Captain, they did a three-part series on it that was fantastic. Uh, Real Crime Profile, Jim Clemente, our friends over there, and Laura Richards and Lisa Zambetti. They did four or five episodes on it. Um, but you know, they're very, very much victim based. So they were titled, I think, Child Murders at Robin Hood Hills. They're not called the West Memphis Three. So you can look for those. They did a great job on it. Uh, the Generation Y podcast, our buddies Justin and Aaron over there did a great job on it too. So, and, and and many more. There's a lot of coverage of this case that you can listen to or watch for homework. However, a big part of what we're doing in the first Probably three months of our coverage of this case, when we launch season five, is going to be tearing down a lot of, I don't want to say misinformation, but misconceptions and misperceptions uh, from all of these documentaries. And so, and this is not us hating on the documentaries at all. It's, it's got nothing to do with it. Uh, we respect all these people. We, we know they did their best work. But here's the thing. When you make a documentary, you're limited on time. Yeah, 90 minutes, two hours, however long you're going to have. So, for example, West of Memphis is about two hours long. Well, they worked on that documentary for years. So imagine years, thousands of hours of video, thousands of hours of audio, all this stuff, and they've got to condense it into two hours. So you get little blips and little pieces of information. And then, of course, a lot of times when a documentary is being made, it's it, there's needs to be an entertainment value there. And I think that sometimes the documentarians may be a bit biased, which is understandable, and it's their prerogative, but they'll tend to lead you down a path without giving you misinformation, but just give you particular information, and lead you down a path where you are left believing what they want you to believe. And that's actually a sign of a very good documentarian. But as we began investigating this case, we found that there's just a lot that's just not, and again, I'm tiptoeing, and I and I don't mean to be coy because I'm just I really don't want to insult any of these people, and I don't intend to, and I do not mean to come across that way. But there's just a lot that we found. It's like that's wrong. Everybody thinks this, and it's wrong, and everybody thinks that, and it's wrong. So a big part of what we're doing is to give you all of it. I mean, we're doing going to be doing a big crowdsource investing. A lot of people have asked. Why are we working so much ahead of time now? And we've, we, this is our third trip down to Arkansas and we've done all these interviews. And what about the crowdsourcing? Well, we're going to get there, but this case is massive and it's complex. And there is an incredible amount of information out there that people don't know. So we, it's going to take us literally months to tell you what we already know that's already out there without us even in doing more new investigation just by. Going through the trial transcripts and going through the police reports and the interview transcripts instead of just the little pieces that we've seen in these documentaries but digging into them in great depth. And, and we want to give you what we want. We don't want to come at this with any kind of bias uh, because I, I can promise you if you watch all the documentaries, you're going to start listening to the show thinking you know who did it uh, when, when we launched season five. You're going to think that you know who did it already and probably assume that we're on some kind of a witch hunt for that person. And that's not accurate. And I'm not saying that that person did or didn't, because I honestly don't know. We have not even gotten deep enough into this to know. And you can't base your judgment on a Hollywood-produced documentary, because they're going to make you think what they want you to think. And you'll see, for those of you, and I don't want to give spoilers away, but if you watch uh, Paradise Lost, after uh, the the first part, you're going to, Kind of think that, you know, maybe there's a question here. After the second part, you're going to be convinced that person X did it. And you're going to, I mean, really, you'll be convinced. And then after part three, you're going to be convinced that person X didn't do it, but now person Y did it. And so that just shows you how easy it is to manipulate people through production and through editing. And so what we want to do is give you all of it. We want you to have all the information. And so we're going to be putting in a lot of it's available. You can find some of this stuff. But we're going to be putting it out in an organized fashion, piece by piece, as we always do in a serialized manner, but give you everything. And so we thought that a good place to start uh, as far as people wanting to do homework, instead of watching edited down videos and podcasts that are talking about what they know from the videos, we want you to get an idea of what was actually happening on the scene here in West Memphis in the courtroom. And so what you're about to hear to end this episode it's about a 20-minute clip, and this is the full state's opening argument at Jesse Miss Kelly's trial. You're going to hear from Mr. Fogelman, who was the lead prosecuting attorney on this case, and you're going to hear what he believes happened. Now, I'm going to tell you right now that it's not what happened, but you're going to hear what the jury heard. You're going to hear what the family members heard. You're going to hear what Jesse Miss Kelly heard, and similarly, Jason Baldwin and Damien Eccles, who were tried separately. Uh, what what they heard, uncut, unedited, raw. You listen to it, and that to me is a better place to start doing homework for the case.
3: State your case. May it please the court, Mr. Stidham, Mr. Crow. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this is the stage of trial in which the attorneys for each side, myself on behalf of the state, and either Mr. Stidham or Mr. Crow on behalf of the defense, get an opportunity to come before you and and talk to you a little bit and explain to you what evidence is expected to come before you and what issues or questions you will be asked to resolve in reaching your verdict. (coughs) Our purpose in giving opening statements Is to aid and assist you, the jury, to help you, uh, to assist you in understanding (coughs) the issues or questions that you're going to be asked to resolve in reaching your verdict. If you'll recall, in in the jury selection process, we talked about the fact that the state had to prove the elements of the offense. Well, the issues or questions that you're going to be asked to resolve (coughs) relate to those elements of the offense. You know, were the elements met? Uh, and there will be, in general, there will be two elements, and I'll get to those a little uh, bit more in a minute. But basically, there will be two elements, and you'll be, those are the issues or questions that you're going to have to resolve in your mind about whether the state has proven those things in order to reach a verdict. The second purpose is to provide you um, some indication, some um, preview of what we expect that the evidence is going to be in this case. Now, some lawyers describe that trial of a of any kind of lawsuit civil criminal or whatever is like putting the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle together now any of you who have ever put together a jigsaw puzzle know unless you have the completed picture beside you as you put those pieces together it's almost impossible to put the pieces together because you don't know what the completed picture looks like well this opening statement is like that completed picture It gives you a frame of reference, something to look back on as each witness testifies or each exhibit comes in as to where that particular piece of evidence fits into the overall picture of the case. In this case, the defendant is charged with three counts of capital murder. In order for you to return a verdict of guilty for capital murder, in order for us to prove our case, the state must prove beyond a reasonable doubt, and this is what I expect the judge will instruct you at the appropriate time, number one, that this defendant or an accomplice, somebody that he's helping or assisting, caused the death of, on one of the counts, Michael Moore, on another of the counts, Stevie Branch, and on another of the counts, Chris Byers. That's the first issue or question that you will be asked to resolve in reaching your verdict. Has the state proven that this defendant or an accomplice caused the death of these three boys? The second issue or question that you're going to have to be you're going to be asked to resolve in reaching your verdict, or the second element that the state has to prove is that when these murders occurred, when the deaths were caused of Michael Moore and Stevie Branch and Chris Byers that the defendant or the accomplice had the premeditated and deliberated purpose of doing so. Now, what's the evidence going to be? (coughs) No, you're not. If you would, I want you to, to just kind of think back to uh, May the 5th, 1993. On May the 5th, 1993, Michael Moore, Stevie Branch, and Chris Byers were in school at Weaver Elementary School in the second grade, all of them eight years old. After they got out of school, um, they're all friends, Uh, At some point after getting out of school, uh, Stevie Branch goes over to Michael Moore's house, and Michael and Stevie, they're both on their bicycles. Uh, One of them has a... Michael has a um, green bicycle, and Stevie has a red and black bicycle, and they're riding around the neighborhood uh, just doing what 8-year-old kids do, just playing. Well, about um, somewhere around 6 o'clock, Michael's mother is outside, and she sees Michael on his bicycle and Stevie on his bicycle. And they've joined up with Chris Byers, who lived across the street from Michael. And I believe the proof's going to show that Chris is riding on the bicycle with Stevie. And they're heading north on Goodwin. Now, this is an aerial photograph, and this shows part of Goodwin. This street right here, and they were heading north on Goodwin, headed toward this area, which is referred to by the kids as Robin Hood area. And on the photograph, you'll be able to see all the, the <coughs> trails and things that the kids ride their bikes on and play. And this area here, this wooded area here, uh, the proof's going to show is an area that's called Robin Hood Hills. <coughs> and it's a wooded area, and believe it or not, in Crittenden County, there's some some higher elevations and lower elevations, and it's a place, a wooded area. I guess it's the kids' Sherwood Forest. It's where the kids play and
2: uh,
3: do what kids do. This is the Interstate Highway, I-55. This is what's called the Blue Beacon Truck Wash. The proof's to show that this is a Love's truck stop right here. This is all residential area in here. Oh, the proof's going to show as I said, Dana Moore saw these boys heading on these two bicycles, headed north on Goodwin Street. And she sent her daughter to you know, go get them. It's time for supper. It was about 6 o'clock. And the daughter couldn't catch up to them. And uh, later, I think a neighbor who, uh, somebody that lives on, I believe it's this circle right here, in one of these houses saw the kids headed toward that area they'd been kind of riding through a yard and she said you know y'all don't ride in my yard y'all don't run over my trees and the last they were seen they were headed toward this area that was the last time that the kids were seen alive that we know of <coughs> now sometime a little bit later i believe the buyers family uh, chris wasn't supposed to be out there he was supposed to have been at home, I think, maybe cleaning up the garage or something. And he wasn't supposed to be out there. And uh, when Mr. Byers gets home, uh, the wife's there, and they see that uh, Chris is not there. And after a period of time, they begin to look. Uh, A little bit later, the moors begin to look. And can't find the kids. They're going around the neighborhood. Now, at this time... um, Stevie Branch's mother was working at Catfish Island, which is a restaurant over near the interstate, and um, her husband was at home. And he had begun to look. Well, the parents begin to get a little frantic, and they end up spending a, a really a frantic night of searching for these kids. Um, they search and search and search, and they don't find their children. Well, <clears throat> on May the sixth, ninety-three the there's a full-scale search out uh, people searching all over not only in this area but uh, all over anywhere you know the, the kids might possibly be sometime around one o'clock in this area and in this area by the way the proof's going to show that there's a a creek that uh, i use the term loosely for our area because it's some kind of a drainage ditch but it it's more like a creek, flows through this wooded area into this is a major drainage canal right here. And it flows into that somewhere about right in here. Now, right here, of course, you can't see it from there, but there's a large pipe that the kids use to cross this ditch to get into this wooded area. Now, the proof's going to show that sometime around 1 o'clock the next day, the uh, police get a call that you know, somebody needs to come out here, and one of the officers goes out to this area, and they're floating in the water in this creek. has about two and a half, maybe two and a half feet of water, maybe knee-deep water. He sees a tennis shoe and maybe a couple of tennis shoes. And he tries to cross over to the other side where he thinks that he can get to it and falls in the water, and uh, you'll actually even see photographs of before he actually got in the water, and then where he fell in the water, and then he gets up and goes around, and he gets back into the water to get this tennis shoe and and see whether it's something that might mean something, and as he's going toward the tennis shoe, his foot hits something, and he lifts up his foot. Michael Moore's body comes up, At this point, the scene is secured. The uh, other investigators are called, and they try to get all the searchers out of the area who've been searching all over the place. And they begin a search of the area. They remove Michael's body. He's nude. He's tied uh, hand-to-foot with with the shoestrings out of the shoes. From left hand to left foot and right hand to right foot, and one of the officers has to get down and inch by inch go through that creek, and they find they found a Cub Scout hat. One of the Michael, uh, was a big Cub Scout and he liked to wear his uniform a whole lot and was wearing his Cub Scout shirt and his hat that day. And uh, anyway, they find the Cub Scout hat. They find the other shoes. They find the kids, some of the kids' pants, and I believe at least two pair of the pants were turned completely inside out and, and, and snapped. They were inside out, but they were snapped. He continues down, and as he goes down about, oh, I don't remember, it was some distance from where Michael was found, found they find Stevie Branch. His head's in the opposite direction in the creek. He's submerged. Um, They remove Stevie from the creek. He's tied the same way. He's nude. They go a little bit further downstream, and then they find Chris. And he's nude, tied the same way. The officer had to go, well, as I said, inch by inch. They, uh, at least apparently, have found uh, all the kids' clothes. Um, they found Michael's Cub Scout shirt. Um, they Some of the clothes were actually crammed down into the to the water. Uh, I mean, into the mud. They were pushed down into the mud. They were uh, concealed in the mud. Uh, in fact, there was a a stick, a large stick that was stuck in the mud pushed down and when the officer first got in started searching it fell over and as it came up one of the kids shirts or pants or something was on the end of the stick and you'll see that evidence. The scene itself there was you couldn't tell if there wasn't blood around it was just uh, the only thing that indicated that there was something odd was on the on this ditch it's a fairly steep bank into the ditch but then as you get down to the area where Michael Moore is found there's kind of a flattened off area and you'll see that on some crime scene diagrams and in the pictures (coughs) which is lower than the bank but then higher than the level of the water and then where Chris and Stevie are found there's also a bank on the opposite side that is similar. Now on these banks the officers noted that the uh, there wasn't the the normal debris that you'd expect to find there. It was uh, there was some grass. It was all bent down that covered with mud, all scuffed around on the bike. Michael Moore had severe head injuries, uh, fractured skull in several places And we expect the proof's going to show that he died as a result of drowning, aspirating water. Stevie Branch, we expect the proof's going to show, (coughs) also died of drowning, but he also had uh, multiple skull fractures, and he also had uh, some mutilation to the left side of his face. Chris Byers, He also had skull fractures. Chris Byers didn't drown. He bled to death. And he was mutilated in the genital area. The proof's going to show that there were multiple weapons involved. Uh, including at least uh, two different sizes of uh, blunt objects and uh, at least one knife was involved. Now after this discovery, of course, the the uh, police did an extensive crime scene search, searching this wooded area shoulder to shoulder, inch by inch, found very little uh, in the area. After about a month, or during this month, during the course of this investigation, the officers uh, talked to a number of people, had a number of potential suspects, and the proof's going to show that one of the potential suspects was a person by the name of Damien Eccles. And there was a lady who was... uh, uh, A friend of Michael Moore's family, her son, played with Michael Moore, and she had decided more or less that she was going to play detective and see what she could find out. She had moved to an area close to where these people hung out, and she became acquainted with the defendant, Jesse Kelly. And she got the defendant to introduce her to Damien Eccles, and... As a result of this, uh, got information about some cult-type activities. Even went to one of these things. I think they may call it an S-Bat or S-Bot or something like that. And um, she went. She told the police. She gave a statement to the police about what she'd seen. And uh, as a result of this, uh, the officers decided that they needed to talk to the defendant. Uh, to see if he might have any information about Damien Eccles. Mm-hmm. On June the 3rd, 1993, uh, the defendant was asked if he would mind coming down to the police department to uh, talk to the police. I think Officer Mike Allen's the person who went to get him. He brought him in, talked to him for a while, and uh, denied various things, and there were some things that He said that he denied, for instance, being involved in any kind of cult-type activities, I believe. And as a result of their conversations, it ended up that um, Inspector Gitchell and Detective Brian Ridge uh, began to question him about, because they questioned him about information that he might have about this Damien Eccles. Well, ultimately, the defendant admitted to the officers that he was present when this occurred. And at that point, the officers began to tape record the entire statement. And at that point, uh, of course, you will, you will hear everything that the defendant said after that point uh, related to this case. Now, the defendant, through his jury selection process, has... Asked you questions about false confessions and that kind of thing. Well, we expect the proofs going to show that this defendant confessed that he was not coerced. Uh, the we do not contend that the proofs going to show that every word that came out of his mouth was the truth. Uh, we expect the proofs going to show that at times he was confused, at times he was trying to lessen his own involvement and tell you that he was less involved than he really was. But after you hear the tape recording of his confession, after you consider the other evidence that corroborates the things that he said in his confession, and after you consider the fact that this defendant told the officers that one of the boys had been cut in the face and only one of them, that one of the boys had been cut in the genital area. If you consider that and the fact that that was not public knowledge, that was information that was only within the police department, I expect that you're going to find that this statement this defendant gave was his statement about what he saw I think you'll find that he lessened his own involvement. And I submit, ladies and gentlemen, that the proof is going to show that this defendant was an accomplice to Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin in the commission of these horrifying murders. And I submit that at the appropriate time after all of the evidence is in, after all of the witnesses have testified, after all of the exhibits are in, after Judge Burnett has instructed you as to the law in this case, that we will come back before you and we will ask you to return your verdict of guilty on three counts of capital murder.
1: Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Mike Bussing is our executive producer. All music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. Thank you to Katie Ross and Chris Brinkley. Both of you, sorry, I've been hard to get a hold of for the last week or to get this website thing taken care of, but both of them are working tirelessly to get us caught up, hopefully before the launch of Season 5. Any delays are 100% my fault because I've just been busy and I haven't had time to get on the phone with either one of them. I also want to thank our transcription team, Anna Dendorf, Britta Bliss, Stephanie McConnell, and Sarah Mueller. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. I'm really looking forward to taking this journey with you. And don't forget, we are going back to Season 3 because we have an update into the investigation of the murder of Kiao Go. So make sure you tune into that. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can always send in questions, comments, or tips to our voicemail line at 269-224-2833. Like our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. As picked by you, the blue apron community.
0: You gotta say that again. Was that your stomach? It was my stomach, yeah.
1: <laughs> These mics pick up everything. Yeah, that was bad. <laughs> How those mashed potatoes doing? <laughs> Don't want to talk about it? No. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You son of a bitch. Hang on. Four seconds of silence. Four seconds of silence. I say that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's like there's a stethoscope on your belly. This is fucking terrible, dude. I feel like there's a whistly sound in these microphones when I, you know.
0: I'm not sure what you're trying to say, Bob.
1: I'm getting all kinds of static from something. I don't know what's going on over there. Is your arm on top of your receiver? No. Yeah, it was.